0: If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting Glass Tire. All of the money we raise, since we are a nonprofit, goes right back into our coverage of Texas's art and artists. Our coverage is supported thanks to readers and listeners like you. If you would like to contribute, you can do so at glasstire.com forward slash donate. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Hello everyone, my name is Leslie Moody Castro and I am Glass Tire's guest editor today for our weekly episode of Art Dirt. And I am happy to say that I am here talking with the indomitable Vicki Meek. <laughs> well, thank you so much, <laughs> indomitable. <laughs> well,
1: I'm, I'm Vicki Meek and I'm here in Dallas, Texas, um, an artist, practicing artist um and i am thrilled to be able to talk to you today because you know i've got a new project and i really want to talk about it
0: yeah and actually Vicky, i want to just jump right in and let's talk about the new project so the project is with the national sculpture center and you have been awarded um, a fellowship yes. for what you are going to do so why don't you go ahead and introduce the project for us
1: yeah i'm actually the inaugural fellow for the National Sculpture Center, um, and what they did was they allowed me to basically define it, um, and so I decided that I um, had been wanting to do something around what I ended up creating, which is the Urban Historical Reclamation and Recognition Project. A whole lot of words, I know. It should have, It should have a
0: shorter <laughs> title. It's a very well, prestigious yeah. award.
1: But I, want, I, <laughs> I, I really wanted to be able to um, have a group of artists tap into the community that is currently under siege in Dallas. It's a Freedmanstown town, um, 10 feet historic district. And it's one of those situations where we don't know whether or not it's going to survive the citizens that are living there are fighting to try to maintain its integrity. But, you know, Dallas has a very bad history of obliterating these uh, communities of color in particular, but really any community that they decide is in the way of development. Um, And so um, what this project will do is it will hopefully allow us to have a creative way to address the stories of the people who live in in that community and who have lived in that community. Um, And like I said, we don't know yet how that's gonna play out because I've got a filmmaker, Jonathan, I mean, Christian Vasquez, a, a playwright, Jonathan Norton, Angel Faz, who's another social practice artist like myself, and um, Brian Larney, who's a visual artist. And then we have a historian, Dr. Marvin Delaney, who's doing a lot of the historical research for us. But, you know, we don't know. The people may decide that they'd like to have their stories told in play form or they'd like to have some murals done or whatever. We don't Mm want to prescribe how it's going to play out. We want the stories to sort of tell us what should happen Um, and so that's what that's what the project is and what's really exciting to me is that you know all of my artist cohorts are basically younger artists you know I'm the old person in the mix (laughs) Um, and we're starting with the elders first gathering their stories and then from that point we'll go to the second level which is the people who are descendants of some people who lived in that area. And then from there to the third source, which would be, you know, whatever documentation we can find and all of that. And the idea is that, you know, I'm really very interested in the human side of this community. You know, you know, when we talk to the elders and say, well, you know, what was play like for children back in the day when you were growing up in this neighborhood? You know, what was the social life like? You know, it's because to me, the stories of people's lives is what makes up a community. You know, it's, The buildings are great you know yes there's some period buildings and all of that that's great but it's the people living there and their stories that for me um, define that community Mm -hmm. so that's that's the goal you know we we hope to be able to um, creatively document their stories and hopefully become a part of what makes them never go away Mm in the in the um, history of Dallas
0: and Vicki, why was it so important to partner with so many people in order to sort of pull these stories or pull cool these stories out of this community in these different tiers from the elders and working your way down?
1: Well, I'm, I'm a big collaborator. I mean, that's kind of my practice. I, I typically don't operate alone. Um, and so and I all of these artists are artists that I've worked with. Um, and know how they work. They all also mine community for their projects, so they're perfect cohorts for me. Um, they think the way I do in terms of that. You know that the community stories are very important, and that um, there there are numerous ways to document those stories. They all think that way, so. It was important for me to have people around me who also would have their ears and eyes open to these stories. So, they'll, so, so that whatever the best way to do this, it, it will surface. You know, I, I can't assume that I know the best way. Um, I know a way that I might do it, but I know that they also have some ideas about how these stories can be um, t- turned into something creative and something that is lasting. I should tell you also that my, my city um, agency that's our partner in this is the City Archivist. Mm-hmm. And that was by design, you know, I wanted to make sure that we were partnered with an organization in the city that would help us make sure that these stories got archived.
0: Oh, wow. So, what will that look like in the future? How will that play out with the City Archive? How it will play out is that whatever we do,
1: whatever we end up doing, is there's going to be a uh, city record of it.
0: Amazing. And that anybody
1: that's doing any research on, on the project and or the, the community will be able to find this information in mm-hmm. the City archives.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So just going back a little bit to what you said at the beginning, um, very briefly about how the City of Dallas is very good at sort of erasing communities. Um, why do you think starting with this location, this community in particular, is a good foundation to start with? And how, how is the involvement of the Nasher kind of critical to this project and really important to this project as well? Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Well, yeah, the Nasher, for me at least as an artist, the Nasher is a natural partner because many, I guess it's been like um, almost, almost 10 years ago now, yeah. Um, when the Nasher celebrated its tenth anniversary, Jeremy Strick, who's the you know director of the Nasher, had decided that instead of just doing some big exhibition, he was going to invite artists from all over the country to come to Dallas and to select a community and to do work that would you know be in some way about that community. I was the only Dallas artist that got selected, and and I used it as an opportunity to really sort of remember and bring into focus Bishop college, which was an HBCU at, in Dallas at one point when I moved here, it was here and then it disappeared in 88. Um, and so Jeremy's always had it in his mind that he wanted the Nasher to be more than just a a sculpture center that, you know, you go there and you see work inside their building and blah, blah, blah. He really always wanted that to continue, which was what was, um, what was the impetus for Nash Republic,
2: mm-hmm.
1: which they're doing now. And so it was a natural fit to um, have my project because I've done that 13 years ago, what was it was 2013 when we did the 10th year anniversary. And then when we did um, Nash Republic, I did a piece for Nash Republic. It seemed like a natural sort of extension if they wanted to have a relationship with me for it to be one that involved engaging community more deeply mm-hmm. so part of this project is we're going to be doing these quarterly events in the nasher inviting the 10th street the residents to come to the nasher for special kinds of activities so that they can begin to see the nasher as one of their institutions that they can you know go to and you know take their families to etc so that's a part of this project is is to actually begin to get you know, the people who live in this community to use the Nasher as a resource for their, the cultural resource for their families.
0: Which I think is just so, um, it's so ahead of its curve, right? How many institutions are actually, you know, responding and reacting to communities in a way that really services people. Um, I've Mm -hmm. also been following, of course, the Nasher Prize and like the grants that the Nasher has awarded Mm -hmm. to individuals in the community, both artistic community and, and otherwise. and. It has been really interesting to see how an institution of its size and of its scale has really thought about how to, to about best practices and how to serve communities, right. and especially mm-hmm. given the resources that it has. Right, most institutions don't do things like this, and so I think the partnership with the Nasher. Um, not only offers an institutional clout, which also comes, of course, with the resources in order to do a project like this, but the ways in which that they are offering their own facilities, services, and resources to the community is, is hugely important.
1: Absolutely, absolutely, and I mean, you know, we we know that we can't take any of that for granted mm-hmm. because you know the the typical way that a museum operates is to do quote outreach, and the outreach is usually something that does not ever. Result in in reach. I mean, you know, that's
0: just the way it is. It's very and true. It's very so, true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we've so seen this so many I was times. Very, I was
1: very determined that that would that would not be the way that we would proceed. It's that we want to be building a um, clientele, essentially, for people from this this, this um, neighborhood to become part of the Nasher family mm-hmm. and. They're, and they're all on board with that, you know, so their their education program is now going to work in tandem with us to come up with the types of, of educational programming that I'd like to see happen when these folks come to the museum. Because one of the things I want them to do is to make sure that they highlight the African-American sculptors that are in the collection, that they understand that, you know, how, how collecting happens. And um, and things along that line, you know, that it's not it's sort of like demystifying the, the, the museum for, for the residents, but then also getting them to understand how, who's in, in their collection that relates to them.
0: There, yeah, there's a sort of like parallel learning process that's happening both within right. this community in Freedmanstown 10th Street, as well as the Nasher trying to understand what is in their collection and how to work with it with the community at the yes. same time, which is really important. Yeah. And most institutions don't do that.
1: Right, right. So that part of it is that part of it, I think, is going to be very useful for you know both the community and the Nasher.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and then, of course, the other side of it is that we're hoping to connect to some other folks nationally who are working in a similar way with community. We have, um, on, tomorrow, we have um, our first Zoom monthly meeting, and we've invited the people from Kinfolk Foundation in New York to talk with us about what they're doing around AI and ways of documenting community that way. I met with a um, couple who um, are working in an organization, well, they founded this organization called Talking Eyes Media out of New Jersey. And they've done a lot of work around social justice and films and, and both films and um, um, print material as well as exhibitions and things of that nature. And so, you know, I'm really trying to sort of make sure that we're not operating in a vacuum mm-hmm. because there are lots of people around the country who are doing work in community to, uh, for the same reason, you know, to try to make sure that communities have a voice. Um, and so that's that's the other side of it, that will be a part of this project as well is us beginning to sort of tie the 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 thread through Mm -hmm. um as far as the national scene is concerned and doing work around preservation of um bipoc communities that you know were historic but are now gone
0: Mm -hmm. and when you talk about going right and that my next question actually is pertaining to that um this community is going is potentially going um, yes there are remnants of it there are histories and memories of it there's um, oral histories etc which you are you are collecting um, and I think another thing that happens in in community projects sort of of this nature is that there is the attempt to save and how do you how do you see that playing out in this project like is the goal to save the actual community itself or is it to save? the stories of the community and the archive of the community can, can this? I think
1: it's, I think, I, I think I would be presumptuous to think that we could save the community, especially given what I know about how Dallas operates. However, I will say this, that we are hoping to help keep the spotlight on this community. So any resources that can be brought to bear to help these people stay in their homes and what have you, we hope to be a part of that movement. And to that point, there's a um, press conference on March 2nd that the 10th Street Historic, um, the 10th Street Residential Association, in tandem with an organization called RAO that's doing a lot of things around um, making sure that communities stay intact, to talk about the way in which these houses are getting burned to the ground in that community as a means of you know, securing lots and what have you so we we are joining them in protesting the burnings and in urging the city to pass certain kinds of ordinances that will allow these people to repair their homes stay in their homes
0: so we're going to be a part of that mm-hmm. sorry can you give us a little bit more background on what's happening in the community for the burning for example how the community uh, how people are being displaced how the city of Dallas has not necessarily been supportive. Just a little bit of background to talk about why this community is currently sort of diminishing. Well, it's a it's an
1: area in the city. We knew that eventually that would be it would be tagged as you know a community for redevelopment um, because its proximity to downtown
2: mm-hmm.
1: and that it's right like there's a train line and and um, it's right off of thirty five. Um, thirty five was back in the fifties came right through the community. That was the first, you know, destruction of the community was when the 35 was built. Um, but then beyond that, you know, it's, it's a community that is very convenient to downtown. So what's happening is you have, um, absentee, uh, landlords essentially who, um, may or may not be interested in holding on to their property. So when the developers come in with the money, you know, They sell, you know, especially if it's just a lot that they have and they have no intention of building on it. So they sell. Mm -hmm. And then of course, you know, then somebody builds a house that is way worth way more than the little bungalows that are there and that drives up the tax base. And that's what eventually makes people have to move as they can't afford the taxes. Because the, the land value and, and all of that has gone up so much as a result of these houses being built that were like a half a million dollars in a place where you, they might have bought their house for $10,000. $10, right. Right. Um, so um, right now, um, there's there's these burnings have been happening where houses, and what one of the residents told me is that the houses that are burning are not houses that are insured. And that's because they don't want anybody to have resources to rebuild the idea is that get the lot. Um, so these houses are burning mysteriously um, and then the lot is available and if it's an absentee person who's not been living there anyway, it's to their advantage if the house is burnt down to just sell the lot to the developers. Um, and so we're what we're trying to do is to bring some focus to that some attention to that because it is absolutely a practice. We know that, you know, that it's not just random houses burning down just because, you know. Um, one of the neighbors said he saw two guys go into this abandoned house, leave very quickly and the next thing he knew the house was on fire. Wow. So, you know, this whole you know, line of conversation. Oh, the homeless are in there and they're burning it down. You no, know, nah, and they're homeless people burning this stuff down. We like
0: to, oh, yeah, we homeless. like to blame a lot of people or a lot of things on the homeless, don't we?
1: Oh yeah, mm-hmm. homeless get blamed for everything. <laughs> you know, it's like if something happens, it, oh, I know that's got to be the homeless mm-hmm. that did it. But in any event, so that you know, there's a lot of, there's a whole lot of of, of layers to this whole issue around displacement and gentrification. And it's not simple. I mean, you know, there's no simple answer to it. Um, Because in some instances, there are people who want to sell their house because they will get more for it than they ever thought they would, even though they're not necessarily getting enough to remain in the neighborhood. Um, But they're going to get more money for it than they ever thought they could. And so some of that's happening. And then there are those people who really don't want to leave. Uh, But the taxes are going to go up. And so it's a question of, and many of those people are are retired people with fixed incomes who don't have the resources to address a a big tax bill, if that's what happens, you know. Um, So, you know, it's it's a very tricky um, kind of a situation that's happening all across the nation, in urban uh, areas particularly, where you had black and brown communities that were stable, very stable communities, but that became desirable because of their location. Because most of the times, the black and brown communities were located to near center city because those, you know, the people were the workforce, and that's where they would, you know, go to work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're vulnerable because of their location, and then they're vulnerable because many times the children of those communities have left, and whose left are the elders. And then you're talking about people on fixed income who don't have the resources to fight this this kind of encroachment when when the developers start swooping in.
0: Well, it's the resources as well as the energy, right? Yeah, I
1: mean, in, in all communities they don't, but th- this group of, of, of um, residents they they are some very energetic elders on mm-hmm. this on this group of uh, of um, residents. But you know, if you don't have the finances to fight this stuff. Um, it doesn't usually end up well.
0: and you actually have already had a meeting with the elders. Can you tell me a little yes, bit about how yeah. that went?
1: We had a lunch, a lunch We, right. we, we had a lunch. Um, and that that lunch was to be to meet and greet, you know, to just basically get to know some of them and then to, to have them know us. And some of the stories, I mean just just the stories that started flowing at the lunch made us know this is such a rich history that we're going to be mining. Um, And we feel like that's, that's the important part, you know, we really do have to make sure that their voices get heard, and the stories that they want to tell get told. Um, And and we're going to be obviously mining them for things that we're interested in knowing. But, you know, we we also want to make sure that they're able to tell the stories they want to tell, you know. Um, so that's, that's, that's how that lunch went. It was very nice, very lovely. They all enjoyed eating and talking and, you know, it was just, it was this stream of consciousness kind of talking. We didn't have a, we weren't interviewing them at this lunch. It was literally just the great bread and and just get to know each other. But the story started flowing.
0: What are some of those stories? Well, I mean, you know,
1: stories like the, uh, the, (laughs) the first black funeral home was there and they would tell the stories about watching out the window when they would, the the elementary school sat right next to the cemetery. Uh It still does actually. And that they would be looking out the window to see who was being buried. And you know, they, the teacher would tell them to get away from the window and all that kind of thing. And then, and then stories about um, the the pharmacy and who was, who was running that. But then they also had some gambling going on behind there. (laughs) I mean, it was, you know, the usual kind of funny stories that you hear, when people just start talking about their childhood and what what was going on Mm -hmm. and and then there were some emotional stories like one of the 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 president of the 10th street Residents association mrs cox she got rather rather emotional when she started talking about the prospect of having her mother and father's home um not be able to be there anymore i mean you know she's living in it right now and she wants to get it renovated and what have you but you know that she said it's like you just don't understand what it means to watch your neighborhood disappear and you know i i could sympathize with her um i mean i go back to philly and i i don't know my neighborhood it's you know temple university has taken it over you know so right. i do i do get that you know and and in this case in, in many of these cases we're talking about people who have literally grown up in their house and this woman's almost 80 and she, she grew up in that house and, you know, her parents worked hard to get that house for their family, you know? So the idea of it, you know, just being a house, it's not, right. you know, it is so much more than that. So I yeah, think it's, that's um, kind of what the stories were. I,
0: you know, I grew up in Austin and I did not grow up in the same house, but I grew up basically in the same neighborhood and the ways in which I don't recognize my own city is, I mean, I can't, I can't quite sympathize with the fact of like, I will lose the house I grew up in, but I feel like I've already lost the city I grew up in. It's a little bit about what you yeah. said in your neighborhood in Philly, right? It's just, yeah, the change is so drastic and I can't even imagine witnessing that over such a long period of time. It's like, it's just stretched out so long for these residents in this neighborhood yes. that is so important and iconic. Um, that it's almost like a failure of the city that it hasn't protected the neighborhood. Um, what are some of the things that do remain of the community now? There
1: are a couple of churches that are there. Um, one is still, you know, de- one is definitely an active church. Um, and then there's a building that was the original pharmacy um, that's still there, but it's no longer a pharmacy. It's, it's actually a business and a residential uh, facility but it's a beautiful building um, and there are lots of houses I mean you know many of the houses are the original houses so um, there there are lots of structures that you can see how it used to be mm-hmm. um, but um, I you know I don't I feel as though because it's been designated I mean it, it is you know state designated as a historic district that automatically should mean the city should be putting resources into preserving it as opposed to helping developers obtain that, you know, those properties and changing it overnight. You know, that that should be the once that happens, that should be the end of the conversation. It should be now we've got this historic district. Let's see how we can protect it and you know make sure that those residents get what they need to stay there. That's that's to me how it should function. That, that is not how it functions. So, I mean, it's good. what we'll have is we'll have a marker. Yeah. And everything else will be gone. Yeah. You know.
0: The situation in the city of Austin is the same. You know, the, the city gives so many tax breaks and, and breaks in general to mm-hmm. corporations and real estate development. When But when it comes to the local community or the local things that could really, like, claim a stake in the history of Austin, it's almost hostile to it. And it's frustrating. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And from one that comes from a community um, of people of color and is working in an arts organization and works in the arts in the city, to see that division is just, it's it's really, it's unbelievably frustrating to, to understand the hostility that the city has towards that. And so the city of Dallas is, is no different and probably... Far more hostile, if I can say so.
1: I mean, my experience since i moved here in 1980 is that developers run this city.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And
1: so, you know, whatever they want, they end up getting. Mm-hmm. And it's rare that that's not the case. Um, so, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm hopeful, but I'm also realistic. And I understand that, that this may be an uphill battle, um, but it's certainly one worth fighting Mm-hmm. And um, you know the the community there is fighting to try to keep its integrity, mm-hmm. and you know we we hope to be a part of that fight.
0: Right. I also think it's what you just said is really important when it comes to a project like this to be realistic. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's only you can't like you said earlier you can't save a community um, because that's that that implies a whole host of issues that are completely out of your control that. Um, It's also a community that you're not necessarily from. So there's complexity in that as well. Um, I think in projects like these, the ability to be flexible and to be malleable to the direction that the project takes you is also incredibly important. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how that's already started to happen? Because I think that I think that this was actually supposed to launch sooner, if I remember correctly, sometime in January. And now, while well, well, it has launched, it's been doing so a little bit slower than expected, which also happens.
1: Yeah. Well, we we launched in in January with the meet and greet, mm-hmm. but um, we we quickly figured out that we really need to. Um, We need to feel this community out. We need to, you know, make sure that we are talking to the right people and, you know, hearing the stories that we need to hear. Um, We have, um, well, you know, it will end in February of 2024. So we have, you know, that length of time to to make sure that we figure out what's happening and do, you know, do something that that documents what we're talking about here. But, um, you know, I... I, I had always figured that the project itself would determine for us at what speed we needed to move and how we needed to move within community. Um, because I think it's always a mistake if you go in with a preconceived notion of, well, this is what we're going to do. and it, It's like the, the community will dictate to you how you should move within it and what you need to be doing in order to honor it. So, you know, that's the kind of that's the kind of way I've always worked is that I've always been responsive to the community rather than thinking the community ought to respond to me, mm-hmm.
0: which changes the nature of the project. I mean, that's, Absolutely. that's the difference between what is a successful community service based social practice based project versus a sort of colonial mentality of coming in and shifting the entire narrative. You know, granted, I'm, I'm so glad that the Nasher is doing something like this, because I think that the, this is something most any institution should do, all institutions should think about doing, but especially if you're coming into a community with the backing of the Nasher, right? Like on one hand, the institutional backing in the sort of art world, the grand narrative of things, yes, is wonderful and important. But on the other hand, if if the, if this community has already been isolated, and if the, the Nasher is already sort of you know, disconnected from them, then having that big I institution come in can also be really difficult to navigate, right? And so it's, right. it's another area where it kind of puts another layer of complexity into things as well, where, where like you said, like it's, it, takes, it takes the community guiding the projects and not the other way around.
1: Right, right. And that's, I know for many artists, that's a hard one to do because they're so used to going in with a preconceived notion mm-hmm. of what they should be doing.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. and that's I mean I've never quite worked that way so it was easy for me because I did so much work in um, arts administration around community engagement and I I have never you know basically said oh this is how this will work I've always been one to listen for the community to 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 sort of tell me how it will work and then respond accordingly Mm -hmm. so that's that process for me is not difficult and actually for the artists that I've engaged it's the same with them you know, they all, that's why I said we we all operate in the same way when it comes to community. And that's why it's going to be fruitful for us all to be in collaboration because we we basically come from the same mindset Mm -hmm. that community will guide us. And then we will determine from that guiding which direction we should move and how that means we'll we'll end up responding to it. So um, I'm, I'm very hopeful that the um, that I'm hopeful that we don't have some major calamity um, happen in terms of no, but you know in terms of the community really losing a big battle with these developers, and you know next next thing you know we don't have the same dynamic going. But right, but I'm thinking that that we're going to start. Well, first of all, we're going to start our interviews with the elders um, shortly. That's that we're about to schedule those, and then. Um, once we start sort of culling through those interviews and say, okay, now the next thing we want to do is we want to talk to some of these folks whose people grew up here, mm-hmm. uh, but they don't necessarily have the same depth of ownership as the elders. Um, and then we can figure some things out. Yeah. You know, so I'm figuring, by, like, we're hoping to do a, a Juneteenth uh, event in collaboration with the 10th Street. Uh, Residents Association, they do a cleaning of the cemetery and they want to do like an old-fashioned Juneteenth event, so we want to become the cultural arm of that um, and, you know, originally we were talking about, you know, maybe we could do this and that, Yeah, but, you know, I said, no, we're going to wait, let's see what they do, and then let's just be a part of what they do because that makes more sense to me than trying to bring something into the community that we've decided sounds real groovy and, you know, the community might go, well, "I don't know what that is, but you know totally. it's, it's better to just be a part of what they're already doing, right, and just you know, just figure out a creative aspect of that. so right. and this, that part of that part of the project is is going to be happening um, throughout
0: mm-hmm. well, and this project will have a sort of ending in in twenty twenty four there will be. well it will have an ending to this phase to this phase correct. because
1: my idea is that the next phase is the mexican-american phase Mm -hmm. and then the phase after that is the indigenous phase so we're hoping that we'll have all the funding in place to continue and do phase two which will be to um um, work with two uh, organizations in the mexican-american community and and you know document some of the things that are happening there in Mm cement city uh, in West Dallas.
0: Um, but that is also to say that there will be an exhibition or a, a something for, a something at the Nasher will Maybe. happen. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> if the community no. guides it that direction, right.
1: <laughs> I mean, because for instance, it may be, if for instance, if they want, let's say they say, we'd like some murals done. If that's the case, then the murals will be done in that community. Mm-hmm. And they're not going to be in the Nasher at right. all. Right. You know, there may be nothing that culminates at the Nasher. I don't know. Mm
2: -hmm. You know,
1: Um, if there's a film that's that's made, you know, we might screen it at the Nasher, you know, but it's not the Nasher is not the focus. Right. And 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 we're going to have a connection to the Nasher by, by virtue of us having these events and things at the Nasher during the course of the, you know, the year or 18 months. But it's not, the idea is not to have some culminating event at the National. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's not the idea. Now, if that comes, if that comes up,
0: fine, but that's,
1: that's not where we are at this moment.
0: Mm -hmm. What are some of the um, surprises that you've already encountered along the way that have sort of shifted things or changed things or sort of um, surprised you in any way? Um, I don't know that I've, I've
1: hit any real big surprises yet. Um, you know, I'm going up to New York in March to look over the material that uh, a woman has that's the daughter of uh, one of the residents that's now deceased and who's also the founder of Black Dallas Remembered, which was one of the organizations that have, you know, came up in the 80s that was the first one to start doing all this documenting of the black uh, community. So. I, I suspect that I'll have some, some surprises when I start going through Mamie's uh, materials because her, she has all of her mom's scrapbooks and photo albums and all of those kinds of things that we need. You know we need we're going to go up and the scan stuff that we will need as far as visual uh, material is concerned. But I also have to say that I was, I was a little bit surprised by how the community that we're calling elders now, um, the people are not that old. I mean, you know, they're like a little bit older than me, but they're not. Then I have to remember, that's because you're an elder. <laughs> 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 then the reality sets in, but well, you're 72, so eh, you may think you're not an elder, but you are. <laughs> so, so, so in a sense, it's, it's like I'm talking to people who are in my age group.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: In a way, you know, and that that was just not something that I, I was registering um consciously, you know, that, you know, wow, you know, we're we're all in our seventies, you know. Uh, it's like, no, they're elder. No, I'm elder. Okay, we're <laughs> all elders and we just need to talk about <laughs> this from that standpoint. Yeah. You know. That's that's one of the things that was just my own personal surprise. That's and really funny. The reality of um, <laughs> Who I am in this
0: process. <laughs> well, it's interesting, too, because, I mean, the the reality of that, too, is that, you know, this is a different community facing a different circumstance as well. Right. And so mm-hmm. that positions them in a, in a like they're the foundation of the stories of this of this place, of this oh, area, yes. of this community. And that positions them in a place as like it feels like an elder. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. It's it's a really right. different right. position to be in, I think.
1: And then I, I, I sometimes also forget that, you know, I've been in Dallas now for 42 years, and which means I've lived in Dallas longer than I lived in my own hometown.
0: Mm-hmm. I forget that about you all the time, Vicky.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's weird. It's weird. But, but, but at the same time, when I hear these stories, I am really ripped right back to, you're not from here. Mm-hmm and because they're 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 very different from how i grew up
2: Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and um i think that's what's so interesting to me is that i am hearing a lot of of um stories of things that i know nothing about right and so it's an education for me as much as it's going to be for other people who are younger and have not had you know the experience growing up in a segregated south
0: right I mean, this this community-based project and projects like this are always sort of a learning process along the way as well as a guiding process, right? And I think that that is one of the things that can make them really successful is that you're learning as much as you are guiding and and positions everyone in kind of a similar playing field, I think, which is really interesting somehow. Um, Well, I'm also really excited to say that. Um, We will have some documentation in this in terms of Glass Tire. We will be publishing interviews with your collaborators um, as well as hopefully... Uh, some folks from the Nasher, which I'm really excited about so that, that we can participate in part of the documentation of this process, um, as well as sharing some stories of the community members, which I'm excited about because it's also, I think that's one of the things I'm really, really excited about in terms of collaborating with you and offering sort of a platform to share some of this stuff Um Offering a place where some elders and some folks from the community can, can also publish their stories is um, something that I think it's absolutely yeah, critical. Wonderful. It really is. Yeah. Um, and it's a platform that we have to be able to do it. So we, we should use it for that. So I'm excited that. Oh, amen. I'm
1: excited <laughs> about that part, too. Yeah. Um, when I was running the center, uh, the South Dallas Cultural Center, and we started publishing the children's poems,
2: mm-hmm.
1: I learned how much that means to people. That just having documentation that you were here, yeah, you know, is so important to people, and um, and I don't take that for granted. You know, I know that whatever we do is is part of that whole idea of making sure that history knows that these people were here and they mattered.
0: Right, right. And I'm I'm thrilled that we can be a part of that as well because that's that should be our role in our states and in the arts community and beyond that. And so. Yeah, you will be everyone, you will be reading more about this project in the coming months and we will learn and grow with it and see how it evolves and and how it comes to fruition essentially.
1: <laughs> we'll all do
0: that together. All together, exactly. <laughs> Vicki, do you have any final comments that you want to add? Other than the fact that
1: I'm so thrilled that, that Glass Tire will be able to be a partner with us in this endeavor, I, I love the idea that we can chronicle, you know, how this project plays out. Because I do feel that, at least for Dallas, this is a different kind of concept.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, I do, I, I, I would be lying if I didn't say that I am hoping to create a model for how this kind of work can, can happen. And, um, you know, Glass Tire is going to be a part of that model.
0: You know, and when we were talking about doing this, um, we both kind of came up with the same, we were really excited about the the same person, which is Kara, Karis Adams, who mm-hmm. uh, is from Dallas, right? And and now right. does not live in Texas, but is from Dallas, respects you, knows you, is someone that I adore, um, and who I've loved having as a contributor and writer during my tenure at Glass Tire. And so it was like one of those things where everything just really fell into place. Um mm-hmm. And it's and Karis is such a divine
1: order.
0: (laughs) Exactly. And Karis is just such a thoughtful individual that really thinks through these things. And so she's just sort of the perfect person to kind of tackle this, come into it and really grow with it as well. So it's it was one of those situations where it was like, yeah, this all just really makes sense. We should be doing this. (laughs) Perfect. Perfect. Vicky, thank you so much. Don't thank go anywhere forever. yet. Don't go anywhere yet. Um, to our listeners and readers at Glass Tire, thank you so much. And stay tuned for more on Vicki's project and the fellowship with the Nasher, Nasher, sorry. And go see some art.
1: This podcast was recorded by Glass Tire and edited by William Saradet. Copyright Glass Tire 2023.